I'm that guy that has been a waiter, a busboy, a line cook, and I'm a dishwasher. The dishwasher. I mean, all of the above. And I and I met the guys that believed in what I was talking about about a culture driven company, about a company where employees were valued, and a company that gave back to the community while being profitable. And I, I think that you know, sometimes in our culture, profitable. Yeah. Welcome to Dig In, the podcast that lives at the intersection of hospitality and entrepreneurship. Here we will explore the stories of the owners, operators, and curators of America's hottest hospitality concepts, sharing a deeper look at the people delivering excellence from their mind's eye to your taste buds. I'm your host, Zach Woods, and I'm ready to dig in. Everybody and welcome to the next episode of Dig In. I'm your host Zachary Woods, and today I have the Maven, the man on the go, literally, figuratively. For those that won't get to see this video, it's it's literally cracking me up. But uh, Steve Palmer, managing partner of the Indigo Road, um, we're going to dive deep into where all the Indigo Road is. But Steve, I'd love to uh, give you a chance. A line about yourself, uh, a line about the Indigo Road, and uh, and then we'll kick it off from there. Sure. So uh, I'm Steve Palmer. I'm the managing partner for the Indigo Road. Um, yeah, we're a Charleston-based hospitality company founded 10 years ago in 2009. Uh, over the last 10 years, we've gone from one uh, restaurant to 24 uh, in the southeast predominantly, Nashville, Raleigh, Charlotte. Atlanta, Charleston, Alexandria, Virginia, and DC. All all over the place. I, for for the people that for the people that hear those cities, I'm just gonna like rapid fire Oak Steakhouse, the Macintosh, the Cocktail Club, Oku, in Indico. I think is the correct pronunciation. Uh, a, a little take on Indigo in a different language. Bar Mash, the Cedar Room, Mercantile and Mash. Uh, Sukoshi, Donetto, uh, I mean, the list is incredible and the growth is incredible. I, I think that, you know, not only the coverage in Charleston, which, you know, from what I've understood and, and kind of researching, that was the, the flagship restaurant, the Oak Steakhouse there in Charleston, right downtown near the Battery. And it's just bloomed, man. It's just bloomed. So uh, I'd love to kind of jump into the first of our segments, which is called Open for Business. I mean, I think for for you, this is going back to 2009, but of course, you've been in the restaurant industry for decades, uh, way before the Indigo Road, you've been doing this. I, I'd love to hear kind of that foundational story of the Indigo Road. How did Indigo Road get involved with, uh, with Oak Steakhouse? And tell me a little bit about that transition from being a part of the restaurant industry to the managing partner of, uh, of a group like the Indigo Road. Sure. So I had, um, you know, it, it was 2009. And like a lot of people, I had been laid off uh, from my corporate hospitality job. I Most of my career has been in independent restaurants, but I've spent some time with Ritz-Carlton, uh, Ginn Resorts. And uh, in 2009, I had, uh, you know, was really sort of pondering the next chapter. Um, I was I was actually hiking in Cashers, North Carolina 
and was was really thinking about the mentors I'd had, the impact they'd made on my life, and and was really centered on, you know, whatever the next thing was. I I wanted it to be more than a job. I wanted it to be more than a paycheck. Um, I wanted to have an impact on people in the hospitality industry. I had no idea the, um, the the layers at which impact would become part of my story at the time. But I was just really, I was actually journaling and, and, and writing all this out. And uh, ironically enough, about 15 minutes after I wrote all of this, the phone rang. Um, and it was a it was a friend I'd known for a lot of years. And he had met one of the partners in Oak Steakhouse. I didn't open the original one. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, it was 09. The, the sales were down. There were things going on. Um, the two investment partners were Wall Street guys with second homes in Charleston. Um, I think that, it, like so many people, it, during that time, they started paying a lot more attention to uh, their investment and um, and really felt like they needed a different level of management um, and, and the restaurant was not making money at the time. And so I was in this space where I was interviewing for another job in Chicago. And, uh, you know, I, I often say I'm the accidental entrepreneur. I, I uh, you know, I, both, Aren't they all? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but you meet people that say, I always knew I wanted to own my own restaurant. And I, I was happy being a part of a team. I'm a very collaborative person. Um, I didn't, I didn't necessarily, you know, need to be, uh, I, I didn't need to be in, um, in, you know, I didn't need to be the number one guy. I, I like, I grew up playing team sports. I like input from lots of different people. I value different points of view. So, uh, it was an interesting time. I agreed to consult for 30 days on Oak and Charleston because I was, really convinced I was going to get this job in Chicago. And after 30 days, the partners flew me to New York and, you know, really it was completely just a, I still to this day kind of shake my head because we met and they said, well, what, what do we have to do to keep you? And I, and I said, well, um, you know, your restaurant's not making money now adding my salary. You're really not going to make money. Uh, so even though you haven't made any money on the first restaurant, we're going to have to open more if this is going to work. And, you know, if you think about it was the worst recession of our generation ever, an asset that's not doing what they thought it was going to do. And suddenly this guy they've never met before is saying, well, saying triple, de- triple down. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, it was a quadruple down and, and, but you know what they said, look, okay. And, um, I have been so fortunate uh, to have great investment partners who believed in me, um, you know, the restaurant business is tough. Not, not every time you unlock the doors to a new restaurant, is there a line out the door? Sometimes it takes time. Um, so there, there, I just, I, I really, I'm that guy. I'm that guy that has been a waiter, a busboy, a line cook. And I'm a dishwasher, the dishwasher. I mean, all of the above. And I, and I met the guys that believed in what I was talking about, about a culture driven company about a company where employees were valued and a company that gave back to the community while being profitable. And I, I think that, you know, sometime in our culture, profit can be a bad word, but, but a healthy business is good for everybody. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. 
Yeah. You know, and, and so it's, um, so we began the journey and it took a couple of years to get, uh, you know, things moving. We opened Oku, uh, in Charleston, which is, a sushi not, con- which is a sushi concept just for those that don't. That's um, right. That's right. It's our yeah. sushi concept that Oku is Japanese for Oak. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was new to Charleston at that time. And, and we weren't immediately successful. It took a year and a half of really just working hard. And it was a scary time for me because I'm sitting there going, okay, the first new project I've done and I've borrowed an enormous amount of money is not working. Um, but again, I had very patient partners and, and things started to turn. And, you know, I got very centered on, we, we opened, you know, by 2012, we had four or five restaurants in Charleston. They were all working. Uh, and I think one of the smartest things I did, you know, there's that saying working in your business or working on your business. And I really took a pause and took a step back and said, okay, this is working. Why is this working? And, and true to my collaborative nature, we, I do manager retreats a couple times a year. And really over the last 10 years, it hasn't been me that has decided the strategy and the direction and that it's been everybody that's been in the room. Um, so we very quickly, um, realized that it was our people that was making it work. You know, it wasn't that I was building concepts no one had seen before or that I was a a better restaurant designer. It was just that we had great people. And so once we realized that, um, you know, I I really wanted to get centered on that. I didn't want our company to feel corporate. Uh, I didn't want, I, I still, I wanted people that wanted autonomy and were entrepreneurial in their mindset to want to work for us. Uh, and so I, you know, I went and found, in my opinion, the best guy to learn from Danny Meyer in New York. Um, yeah, yeah, you're, you're stealing my, you're stealing my lines, Steve. <laughs> you're stealing my lines. That's a great problem to have though. I, 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 when I went and shot, uh, when I went and shot, uh, Indico, when I was down in Charleston, uh, two weeks ago, I, I literally found a copy of Setting the Table from Danny Meyer, and I took a lot of shots with that book because I, I totally, I mean, I live in New York. I've, I've been to Gramercy Tavern. I've seen a lot of his concepts from USHG. And as a compliment, man, and I really mean it, I can see a lot of his ethos. While, while the restaurants are very different, right, the ethos is there. But we'll get into Danny in a little while. It's, that's going to be at the end. So that's good. That's good. So you found Danny. You found? Did you actually meet with Danny? And, and yeah, I, no, no. We we have developed a relationship. Um, you know, they had a teaching school called Hospitality Quotient. Um, yeah, where, yeah, where, part of their consulting arm from you. Yeah, you their hospitality. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I went to their school um, and and then started bringing people on our team there. I brought Danny's team down to Charleston and we just really started really articulating um, our values, who we are, what our culture is. And, you know, the great thing about um, when, when I really started looking at what Danny was doing, it was very much what we were in alignment with. We just weren't articulating it the way USHG is, was. And so it really showed me, you know, and again, there's always been this sort of push pull where I've never wanted things to feel too corporate. Um, I've never wanted things to feel standardized in the way that 
I believe even the Oak Steakhouse in Raleigh is a different expression than the Oak Steakhouse in Charleston. They're different people. It's a different design, a different chef. Um, but how do you how do you how do you standardize your values in a way that feels authentic uh, and real? And um, so, really, just set you know set of set on a path to do just that. Yeah, and I. And, you know, this is, and like, like I said before, in, in our initial conversation, that was like four minutes long. Um, I think, you know, talking to someone like yourself, it really gives me what I would consider to be like the perfect bridge between the two narratives that I'm trying to weave together, right? So Dig In is obviously a, a show and a, and a podcast about the hospitality narrative and the stories behind these wonderful dishes and the beautiful latte art and the nice cocktails. But there's, there's definitely an element of what are the, what are the foundational values of our business that allow us to run a successful business, not just a successful kitchen, not just great, beautiful food, but a successful business. And I, I think, you know, and I've, I've read a number of Danny Meyer's books and, you know, personally have been inspired by that, not because I'm in the restaurant industry, just because I think it's it's actually great advice that any business, whether you're in the tech space, you're in the software space, you're in the hospitality space, should find what are their core values, lead with empathy. Um, and I think a lot of businesses would do well to bring some enlightened hospitality into their modus operandi whether they're in the hospitality space or not. Um, but it's it's awesome that you're kind of using those words and not me because everybody's like, yeah, Zach, you always talk about this. But I think, you know, 24 restaurants in 10 years, and if I'm doing the math right, you had five in 2005. No, you had five as of uh, 2013. So that means that the growth has really upticked the last six years, and it sounds like there that inflection point may have been how do I really institutionalize these values into the way that we operate our businesses? Um, but it's, it's super duper cool. Super duper cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to go and uh, ask you the next question, which is you've been doing this for 10 years, right? So you, you talked about Oak, you've talked about Raleigh. Uh, you have a number of other cities which will come up in our, in our on the fly speed round. But I'd, I'd love to hear what's what's fresh out of the oven with the Indigo Road. What's new? Um, maybe a new concept that you're working on. That could be it. Could be as city that we don't know about, right? That would be the biggest reveal. Or it could be, hey, we brought this new dish to one of the concepts and it's kicking ass and we love it, right? So it could be as big or as small as that. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we're working on, we've opened one in Charlotte, we're about to open in Atlanta, is called Sukoshi. So the Japanese word for a little bit of something is a Sukoshi. And uh, so we, we, you know, a little bit following Danny's cue with Shake Shack. We, we, I love Japanese cuisine. Uh, I love, uh, I just love everything about Japanese culture. Uh, Their hospitality is second to none in the world. Um, and so we decided, hey, why don't we get into the fast casual space uh, and, and give it a go? So uh, we've opened Charlotte in January. Uh, Sukoshi Atlanta will open um, next month. 
And so, you know, we may, I don't know yet, we may find out that we don't belong in the fast casual space and that, that, that we're, we're full service guys, girls. Um, but that's, that's something new. You know, in Atlanta, uh, we, we opened a pretty iconic hotel called the Hotel Claremont. And I, I being of a different generation of chefs, you know, I kind of came up with the guys, even the Southern chefs had been classically French trained. And, and it was funny when we started working on the hotel, it was seven years ago. Uh, and I said, you know, I think at some point French is going to have a moment again. I, a lot of the younger generation chefs, Asian is really all kind, you know, Korean, Southeast Asian. There's a lot more of those influences than the classics. Um, which, which interestingly, just, just as a, a, a lot of that influence is French in origin, right? So there's a lot of French. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Asian sure. cuisine, which is which is a which is a fascinating overlap. So, yeah, no, the, the Japanese are obsessed with French cuisine. And uh, so, you know, we, we um, I, I really wanted to open a French restaurant and I felt like in Charleston we had done enough for a while. I felt like Charleston was going to get sick of me. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, we, we opened a restaurant in the, in the hotel named Tiny, and it's called Tiny Lou's. Tiny Lou's. So this hotel has a long history of cabaret, uh, of naughtiness. Uh, it, it, it was opened in the 20s. There's different seasons of the Claremont. But in, in there, we found a poster, and it was of a dancer, and her name was Tiny Lou. Uh, she was a six-foot-tall woman. And it, the poster said, the woman who famously refused to dance for Hitler. And so the lore of Tiny Lou is that she refused to dance for Hitler. She fled Europe and she ended up in Atlanta as a dancer. So we thought, what a better name to, to, to name the restaurant than Tiny Lou's. And uh, it was the ownership of the hotel that found the name. I can't, I can't claim credit. But, um, you know, and it's been, it's just been a return to some of my early restaurant memories um it's been so well received in atlanta uh so you know those are really the things that are newest for us we're opening another in daco in charlotte um and that will open in october uh and then we're just we're going to take a pause for a minute we're going to run what we have um we're going to get better at what we're doing we're going to really take a look at at the quality of what we're doing the quality of our service uh, so 2020 will be a year of refinement for sure. Kind of taking taking those dishes and do, making Expo 30% longer just to master the the delivery. Now I I'm sure I'm sure you can you can go back to New York now, right? Ten years later and have that conversation with the investment partners and say say guys, we're going to take a pause and they're going to say no, Steve. You said we had to quadruple down. <laughs> what are you talking? No, about? no, no. Listen, I. <laughs> They, they're ready for a break too. I, I have, they have invested an enormous amount of money over the last 10 years. And, uh, I think we're all, <laughs> I think we're all ready for a little bit of a break. Now it, your, your roots, if I, if I have the timeline, right, your roots, actually, uh, you were in Atlanta way before it, the Indigo road doing, uh, doing a couple of different things. Right? Yeah, no. So I grew up in Atlanta, so that's home. Um, you know, my first dishwashing job was 13 years old. Um, uh, you know, worked. I mean, I was a line cook at a Fud Rucker, the first Fud Ruckers open. 
Best, um, best burger in town, man. The best burger in town. Came came in and out of Atlanta in 95, right before the Olympics. I opened uh, a restaurant called Canoe. I was the wine director there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in and out of Atlanta. We have five restaurants in Atlanta now so uh and and about to have six so it's it's definitely our second largest city um i I have a already had a built-in infrastructure of other hospitalitarians um and uh so yeah it was uh atlanta was um it just it just made sense to for us to have a have a pretty big presence there yeah i think the it kind of taking taking a throwback I remember the mention of the Indigo Road. I think the first time I, I obviously knew about Oku and I knew about Oak um, from having, you know, I went to the University of South Carolina and graduated in 2010. So you guys were right in the swing uh, or right at the cusp of starting up these places when I finished, but would travel back and forth. But the first time I really heard the name was, I think, when the Indigo Road was, uh, you guys were building the first Oak Steakhouse in Atlanta. Um, which, yeah, that was, that was five, it'll be five years ago, uh, in October. So 2013. Yeah. yeah. 20, so I was 2014. Yeah. So that was right. I was, I was living in Richmond, Virginia at the time, which by the way, uh, shameless plug for the Richmond dining scene. Uh, if, if you're looking for a next location in 2021, um, they have an amazing, eater culture. People love to go out. They love to share and dine. And I, I think the sense of community there is huge. But I heard about, you know, that somehow, right, because I'm a weird guy and I'm reading the internet about who's opening what restaurants. And I, I saw the Oak Steakhouse and it said the Indigo Road. And I started clicking around and playing. And and sure enough, I was like, hey, this guy's crazy. You know, what is he doing? And, and now five years later, here we are talking. So I, I'm going to move to a section. This is rapid fire. We've been a little bit, uh, you know, long in the tooth talking about a lot of things. This is the on the fly section, right? I need something on the fly. You have restaurants in a number of cities. We're going to pick five of those cities and we're going to go, what's the first thing that pops in your mind when I say the city's name? It can okay. be a word. It can be a feeling. It can be a sentence, right? But try to keep it short. So first and foremost, the origin place, Charleston. What comes to mind? Home. Home. I love it. Nashville. Opportunity. Atlanta. A return to my roots. Roots. D.C. Uncharted waters. And last but not least, where you are right now, Raleigh, North Carolina. Amazing reception. I love it. That was the best lightning round we've had so far. Some people like, <laughs> do not know how to lightning round. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like getting better at how to ask it because if you don't really close that box, they're like, I love to talk about Raleigh. Um, so in an interview, and you're going to be like, this guy's really like in my business right now. In an interview six years ago, you said something about the your career sort of having – this notion of the ripple effect. Um, you know, that was, that was in 2013. We're now in 2019. You guys have grown tremendously since 2013. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the ripple effects or the waves that you've continued to see 
in the last two or three years. I, I know that, you know, we, we haven't talked a lot about Ben's friends, but in addition to being a restaurateur, uh, you're also, you know, hugely involved in charity. You're hugely involved in the, the sobriety movement for the restaurant industry. Maybe within those waves that you felt, especially in the last two years, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, A, what Ben's Friends is and maybe some of the waves and ripples that you've seen result from that path uh, that you've been developing and plowing the last couple of years? Sure. Um, so, you know, I think the biggest shift that's happened nationwide in our industry is this conversation about mental health. Um, and I think, I think it's, it's multi-layered. I think the Me Too movement has been a part of that conversation. You know, there's, unfortunately, there's been a lot of negative press around the restaurant business and, and, and bad behavior. Um, and I think there was also a time in our industry where the bad behavior was celebrated. Um, and I think the industry itself is kind of having this reckoning about, you know, I say this all the time, we take care of our guests every single night, but we're just now starting to learn how to take care of ourselves and take care of each other. Uh, we had a chef, Ben Murray, who was um, a longtime friend. Uh, he was he worked with us. We had lost touch over the years and he um, came back to us. He helped us in Florence, South Carolina, open a restaurant. I didn't really ask a lot of questions about where Ben had been, what Ben's life had been about, because he showed up. He did a great job. Ben was not somebody that you would associate the word depressed with at all. Uh, he was happy-go-lucky. He was fun. Um, and sadly, uh, one night, uh, we, we had put him up in a hotel room because uh, he, he lived in Atlanta, and he had stopped coming to work. And we tried to find Ben, and several days later, we realized that Ben had shot himself and had committed suicide. Um, you know, I'm a person that has struggled with addiction. Um, I'm currently, if I, you know, November will be 18 years of sobriety. And I, I had gone to rehab. I, I, was, I was the result of, a, of, a, of an intervention from a restaurant owner. Um, but, you know, when, when I got sober in 2001, I didn't know anybody that didn't party. And I mean, party hard in the restaurant business. I'm not saying they didn't exist. I'm saying I didn't know them. Um, and you know, it, it was, it was a lonely, the first couple of years of sobriety were lonely. I, I, I loved the hospitality business, but suddenly I was a little bit of an outsider. Um, I, I didn't want to get out of the business. Uh, being around alcohol every night is, is interesting when you're dealing with addiction. Um, and I'd always had in the back of my mind uh, that I wanted to do something to give back. I really feel like the restaurant business saved my life. I mean, if those owners, those people had not done an intervention, I, I'd be dead. There's no question. Um, and so when Ben tragically took his life, to me, it was very clear what needed to happen. I, I went to Mickey Bass, who's a fellow restaurateur in Charleston and my co-founder and Ben's friends, also a sober person. And I just said, we, we've got to do something. And so at three in, in November, it'll be three years. Three years ago, we started the first Ben's Friends. Ben's Friends is a support group that meets weekly. Um, it's run by people that are sober in hospitality. And, and, also, and obviously, there's people that are seeking sobriety, are finding us. 
And, you know, I, you couldn't have planned or predicted, but it, it happened right at the time that Anthony Bourdain sadly took his life. They're, they're just suddenly, it was like instantly there was this bigger conversation about, about mental health. And so Ben's friends happened to be in real alignment. And, you know, I'm proud to say that we're in nine cities now um, and it's growing. Our goal is 50 cities. We want to be 50 states. We want to be in every state in America, and the response now is that is that nine cities, nine cities, and nine states right now. Yes, yeah, and so um, you know we we want to be in, in every state in America. We we know there's a need, um, but but the, there's been so many blessings to come out of Ben's friends. We just launched in Austin, Texas last week. Uh, you know there were 35 people at the first meeting. Um, and, and it, it's, there's a camaraderie that already exists in the restaurant business because of the intensity of work, the nighttime hours. Um, I also think restaurant people are just beautiful souls who love connection. That's why they're in the, in the business. And so what we're finding is this added layer. Um, people feel safe to walk into a Ben's Friends meeting where they may not to another recovery community not taking anything away from that because i've i've been a part of the 12-step community the whole time saved my life but what we found is that people feel safer walking in and going these are my people this is my tribe there's a line cook there's a bartender there's a this and um you know we're now seeing people in charleston that are celebrating two and three years of sobriety with best working. friends yeah, yeah, and and their oh, first yeah. meeting was a Ben's friends. Um, you know, we're very upfront. And we say, look, one hour a week is not going to fix you. This is this is a bridge. It's a resource. It's a platform. Um, but it's it's we're on to something in a way we could have never imagined. Um, I, it is the most important work I'll ever do in my life. Uh, having a successful business has been enormously fulfilling mostly because of the way in which we get to enrich our employees' lives. But Ben's Friends is the work that I was meant to do. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's um, I'm super excited about it. And, and you know, there's just, I, we, I, I keep saying if I didn't have a day job, I'd be doing Ben's Friends all day long. But, you know, obviously the Indigo Road is still very much a passion. Uh, the people of the Indigo Road are my biggest passion. And, and, and that, that just naturally, the ripple effect, as you mentioned, that naturally extends to all. I, I think restaurant people are the best people in the world. And, and <laughs> I agree. <laughs> you know, we're just, we're just a loving bunch, sometimes a little misguided, sometimes a little uh, dysfunctional, but, but I still think we're the best people in the world. And so um, I'm getting to give back in a way that, that is and not me specifically Ben's friends is so much larger than me, but people are, people's lives are being saved. And, and there's just nothing when you see somebody come in to their first meeting and, and they're broken and they're dark energy all around them and they can't, they, they can't imagine their life with or without alcohol. Uh, and then now, and then they walk in two years later and they're this bright light. They're smiling. They're happy. And it's just, there's nothing that will ever compare to that. Nothing at all. That's, that's incredible. And, and interestingly, I, I, 
I, as an interviewer, didn't realize that one of the sections, you know, obviously is off menu. If there was ever anything that's off menu from a hospitality group to create a sobriety network in nine cities in two years, I can't imagine what would be less on the menu, but so in the vein of, uh, of creating great hospitality. And I, I see such an interesting, I see such an interesting synergy and maybe it's because, you know, you and I share this bit of a poet kind of inside, right? Which is, Hey, how do you have great hospitality if you don't have the people that want to give the hospitality because they're not sober, they're not healthy, they're not happy. Um, and it sounds like Ben's friends is also, um, aiming to help the community at large, um, right? Which means that could be someone that dines at one of your restaurants. That could be someone that comes and joins one of your restaurants as a staff member. Um, so that I, I think there is kind of an ecosystem-like effect that Ben's friends could have. And uh, I just, I think it's so cool that, you know, in the face of tragedy, you, you've really taken that and done a lot with like the Phoenix, like rising in the ashes and uh, it's really a celebration of Ben's life, and I think something that uh, obviously um, you, you hate to see that happen, but you love to see something beautiful and graceful come out of it, right? And to see that through his tragedy, so many other people are being saved, uh, and I, I think it's a, a true compliment to his life. And I just, it, it's it's a great thing. Some people talk about like going scuba diving, right? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I created this uh, this platform for people to get sober, and that, it, it's really really cool. Um, so the, the next question you, and I, I hinted at you being a poet a little earlier. I, I really believe that in, in talking to you now and hearing a lot of the interviews, there's a very much a poetical side to Steve, right. Or, or a drama orientation towards Steve. Um, you mentioned that you felt like part of your job meant being at the front row of a theater of life. What, what is a part of that theater that you really find most enjoyable, uh, right? You're at a restaurant and you're like, that thing, when that thing is happening, I'm on the edge of my movie seat and I'm crunching the popcorn and I'm so into watching that scene unfold. I think it's, I think it's um, introducing people to things they haven't experienced before and then watching their joy. I think it's, um, you know, I always say that we create a sense of well-being, that, that our guests come in when they walk in the door. They've got life. They've got stuff. You, you never know who it is that you're talking to or what it is that they've gone through that particular day. And uh, I really find that that there's nothing more rewarding than it's like giving somebody a, a big hug. You know, they sit down, their shoulders relax. We lean in and engage with them and make eye contact and say, we're so glad you're here. And then we take them on this journey of food. And, you know, I always say food is the great connector. You, If you break bread with somebody, you're going to learn something about them that you didn't already know. And, and, um, I, if I, they chew too loudly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think <laughs> that, and I think that, you know, I, I think that when we break bread with people, uh, we find that we're more alike than we are different. And, and so we get to do that every single night. And I, I, I find it a privilege. Um, you know, I waited tables for 10 years and I, and it was, it was before the internet and before top chef and before the foodie culture before podcasts. Um, and, and I never thought I was doing a second hand job. I never thought I was 
doing something less than. I always felt like what a privilege that I get to create this experience for somebody that hopefully they're going to remember for a long time. Um, so I think at the core, it's it's just creating those experiences every single night. Um, yeah, that's what has kept me going for 35 years. So it's, uh, yeah, it's that. And I, I think I reflect back to, to one of the shows that we did previously with the gentleman named Nazar Harab, who, you know, he, he started he started as a mixologist literally two years ago. And I mean, Steve, he's just one of these guys that you're like, you're just a genius when it comes to taste and profiles. And, and he, he told me something that I thought was just truly, truly awesome. And it, and it reflects a lot on what you just shared about your 35-year journey, you know, from dishwasher to, to 20 concepts. And he said, you know, people, people would kind of ask me about being a bartender and, and they would kind of say, you know, well, what's your plan after this? And, and this guy is an immigrant from Poland. Uh, he, you know, he came here four years ago and he said, I never felt like this was a backup plan. He said, I always felt like my opportunity was to create a taste profile that made you freaking joyous. And I'm just, and I'm just like, wow, you know, wow. Like this guy could have said anything. And now lo and behold, two years after starting, he's literally opening his second full on bar concept in New York city. And I think that those two things, the, the mental angle and thinking and the second bar, I don't think they're unrelated, right? I think that they're highly correlated that just the way he thought about the, the vocation of creating great drinks and pleasurable experiences was what enabled him to get those opportunities. And I, I, I can only attest that I think your success is 100% connected, if not 100% a result of that mentality, right? Of I've never done a second rate job. I've always been empowered to help people make great connection and to enjoy and to experience new things and something I like that you said know about their know about their similarities and feel and share those similarities more than more than focusing on their differences I, I think that's why you have 20 concepts or 24 concepts and growing um, which is pretty awesome yeah so we, we've we've talked a lot about success and growth right so you know from 2009 to today indigo road has been a rocket ship uh, all the way up to uh, a new article that was written uh, by forbes called the small giants but there's a, a concept on our show where we call 86 right you you of course know that uh, know that indie, industry lingo where something's out we're out of this what's something in the growth of Indigo Road that you as a leader had to 86, right? You said, this isn't working. And for us to grow or for us to offer better hospitality where we're at today without growing, what's something that maybe as an advice to other restaurateurs, they should think about, hey, if you spot this thing going on, think about getting rid of it and see what the result is. So uh, what's been interesting for me is... Uh, sort of the, I, I call it the pervasiveness of cool or the attitude of indifference. Um, I think that I always say indifference is the enemy of hospitality. And as the, as the food media in the last 10 years, as the rise of celebrity chef has become what it has become, when you read food reviews now, and I mean all across the country, 
they talk a lot less about the service, the ambiance, the entire experience. It's about the farm, the cooking technique. And by no means am I saying that our, our culinary brethren, brothers and sisters don't deserve their due. But what's, stopped, what's dropped out of the vernacular, not totally because guys like me exist, guys like Danny Meyer exist, but, but hospitality as a, as a non-negotiable um, has kind of gone away. And, you know, after 09, the, the, the tablecloths came out, off, the Edison bulb showed up, the reclaimed wood, because we all wanted comfort, right? It was this dark, depressing time. Um, but, but the thing that I think restaurateurs should get rid of is the attitude. Um, when, you know, we've all been to that restaurant that like, has been in the big magazines and has been reviewed, and you go there, and they act like they're doing you a favor to, for you to be there. And, and that's always so disappointing to me. And it's a little bit of a head scratcher because when I came up in the industry, it was, you know, so much about the service, the service, the hospitality. And I've seen that wane. I think it's coming back because I think what, what people are now like, you know, we're dining out more than ever as a public, which is good. Um, but I think people are starting to go, well, well now, wait a minute. I, you know, I just spent a hundred dollars and. I didn't get a smile. I didn't get any level of engagement. I didn't get the warm hug that I always say our, our guests should get in our restaurant. So the thing that I think needs to be 86 is the hip, slick, and cool attitude. I I freaking love it. <laughs> that was the best 86 we've had. <laughs> some, people, <laughs> some people, Steve, some people hear that question and they're like, what does that even mean, man? Sure, uh, sure. Right. But I, I, I think I couldn't, I mean, one, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I sense some elements of this is why I'm doing this right here is because of some of what you just said, which is, I think the focus has been in the wrong place from our culture at large. Um, I, I think it's both the result of the restaurants, like a supply and demand issue, right? Both the restaurants have gotten cooler and hipper and maybe the attitude has changed and shifted from hospitality and our, our culture has become much more transactional in the way that we approach a dining experience. So people are going out more, but what are they doing when they go out, right? They're less focused on, do I feel hugged? And they're much more focused on, is my food perfectly plated? Is that a good background for my Instagram shot? Um, right, that's right. I, I, right. I, I think there's there's really been this uh, this dramatic shift, and I I felt like and, and have just been affirmed to no end that doing this show would help reveal that people like yourself and people like Nazar and, and people like Ann, you know, that we've interviewed, they they have a deeper story and there's a deeper thing than just good food, right? There's right. enlightened hospitality. There's, right. there's, I want to give you a hug. I want to give you an experience. I want to create a healthy, happy workplace for my people. Uh, and, and I, I'm just so proud to have uh, been a part of helping people share these stories and you've done a great job. I mean, media have been all over you. I'm going to, I'm going to shift to something and, you, you're going to get to give the big reveal, but I'm going to say some concepts and then you get to tell me what I'm talking about. Are you ready? Yep. So a, a on-demand real estate firm in Phoenix, an outdoor living marketplace 
in New Hampshire, a company that helps people play awesome games, which by the way, Spikeball, I'm a huge fan and have been for like 12 years, three internet businesses, a dog food company, and the Indigo Road. What am I talking about? Entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs. The 2019 Forbes Little Giants list <laughs> has, has, has I'm like I'm like Steve. You you're crazy. You're crazy. By the way, the photo which I will which I definitely will, will share in some of the collateral that we put out for the episode of of you holding that that massive tomahawk steak chop. I mean, one I think you would have fit in in Chicago. But let's just say that there would have been a good path in Chicago. But it's it's awesome. Tell me about that that experience. You know, Forbes reached out and they said, "Hey, Steve," and you're like, "What? You know, you I, you want to feature me? Tell me tell me about that experience. It's just too cool." Sure. So, um, I had no, you know, like I I had no connection to Forbes, um, uh, and I got an interview. It's a very thorough process. So it was a series of of web interviews. Um, the small giants community is a is a very forward thinking, um, socially conscious group of people. So it's it's way beyond do you have a good business. Um, it's it's do you have a good business? How are you making an impact? Uh, and so it was it was a very intense process. And I, they don't really you know they don't really you don't really know. Um, so this was like a, this was essentially an application. You were applying. Yeah. They reached out to me and uh, so you don't really know. And then, it, and then it happened. And um, we were the only hospitality company named small giant this year. Uh, we were the only company in South Carolina. Um, and so it was, it was a huge honor. I mean, Forbes is um, obviously who they are. Um, they are uh, anecdotally, they are publishing a book that I've written It'll be out in uh, late October, early November, um, and and so I don't know why Forbes decided to show me so much love, but they've been great, and um, it's a huge honor. It's an honor for so many people other than me. Um, it, it to me, it's a validation for all of our employees about our values, the things we believe, and and I say this all the time. Danny would say the same thing. You know, hospitality and culture is that those aren't feel good words. It's a business model. Like our restaurants are more profitable, the more hospitable we are to our employees. And uh, so, you know, the, the Forbes thing was completely out of the blue and uh, and very exciting. I, I, I think it's it's just incredible, man. I mean, I like I said, it's, it's been an honor to to read and better understand what all's going on. And I, I think anyone, anyone that takes 30 minutes out of their day, you know, I might've taken more than that because I'm, I'm that guy, but to read about the different things going on in the Indigo road. And, and for that matter, unions for a hospitality group, somebody that really wants to go to school about how the business model of hospitality is a business model. Anyone that looks at um, Shake Shack, and thinks that was a, a flash in the pan is out of their mind. They're out of their right. mind. The people that work at Shake Shack are the happiest, the most hospitable people right. working 
maybe in the industry, not even not even in the the, the, the fine dining industry, just in the industry. They're incredible. Uh, and then you add the elements of scale and fast casual, like turns, if you will, to use kind of an industry term. I mean, the, the metrics of running a fast casual place are just unparalleled. But without the grounding of hospitality, it's really hard for the rocket ship to, to go up. So I I have a feeling that uh, that Sukoshi's gonna 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 hopefully follow suit and you know keep keep Danny on speed dial because he may know a thing or two about going from we, from, two we to, from two to fifty or two to a hundred. Right. So the last section before we close, Steve, is is something that's pretty new on the show. I, I was inspired by. Uh, a guy from the Thomas Keller group who uh, name is Greg Ryan. He he works now out of Los Alamos, California, which is about an hour and a half or two hours north of uh, uh, north of Los Angeles. And he and his wife, who both were at Per Se in New York, they I went out there with my girlfriend, and you know we enjoyed this amazing lunch at just a place that you would never imagine being two hours north of LA. And he, I told him we were going to Nashville. And this guy just started gushing. You know, he was like, oh, my God, you got to go here and you got to go here. And I kind of had the idea of what a unique opportunity I have to speak with people that are just entrenched in the hospitality game, entrenched in eating at cool, fun, hip restaurants. Um, I'd like to pick two cities you get to pick um, and give two places not from the Indigo Road that you love, right? Two places in each of the two cities. You get to choose which two cities that you're like, man, these two places are just incredible. Diners go, diners go and visit. Maybe a, a reason for why those two places in each of the two cities. Okay. All right. Um, New York, uh, Gramercy Tavern. Not to be redundant about USHG, but Mike Anthony, the chef there, is a good friend. Uh, my fiance and I got engaged there. I've probably eaten there fifty or sixty times. <laughs> um, and I you, you have like a bloodline. Like a, if you did a twenty-three and me, there'd be like a, a a slight tint of Gramercy. Right. Um, <laughs> so I so I think that it's my favorite restaurant in America. Um, I, I also think in New York, in Brooklyn, um, friends Sean Feeney and Missy Robbins. Lilia, I think, is the best Italian restaurant in America right now. Um, so that's that. Um, San Francisco, we were there at Christmas. Two different, distinctly different experiences. Quince, which is a three-star Michelin Italian tasting menu restaurant. Just mind-blowing hospitality. Um, mind-blowing. And then on the complete other end of the spectrum, the Hog Island Oyster Bar. Uh, and, and I think both represent something that's timeless in Quince. It's, it's, it's the ultimate, ultimate hospitality. And in Hog Island, it's a classic American oyster bar. And there's, for me, <coughs> as I've gotten a little bit older, you know, we're, we're such a food, our foodie culture is so obsessed with what's new and what's next. Um, that man, sometime when you revisit a classic, you're like, there's a reason the word classic is classic. And, and yeah, exactly. you know, and it's what I love about steakhouses, right? I mean, ironically, before Oak, I had never worked in a steakhouse and steakhouses are not where foodies go, um, but they're where a lot of people go to be treated well. But anyway, I, yeah, New York, Lilia and Gramercy Tavern and Quince and Hog Island Oyster Bar. 
those are those are I love the the duality there on the San Francisco front, right? I, yeah. I I cannot believe that there's not a just epic hospitality board oyster bar uh, that's just dishing out things. I mean, uh, Charleston's huge in that, but I got a feeling that if you if you make your decision to come up the eastern coast, that that you know, oysters, oysters used to be, and this is a fascinating fun fact, something you probably know from your time down in Charleston, that oysters were like the main source of protein for Americans for like hundreds of years. So yeah. I think I think that concept, and this is a total flyer, but I think that concept's gonna come back in less of a hip and trendy way and in more of a sustainable food way, right? More sure. of a wait a minute, you mean we could grow this great source of protein if we just let them grow a little larger? And yeah, sure, they're slippery, but they're amazing when paired with certain types of white wines or certain type of bubbles. Um, I think it's going to go there. Last question. We're going to wrap it up. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to have to run pretty soon. You've been in the industry for 35 years. You've been running one one of what I think is arguably one of America's most successful hospitality groups the last 10 Closing time, what is your favorite way to close down a shift? When when this thing happens, you're at the restaurant, maybe you're at, you're in the office of one of your places, and you say, man, when this thing happens at the end of a shift, Steve feels freaking awesome. You know, there is a um, – I've never been asked this question. I, I'll tell you, there's a moment – and with so many restaurants, sadly, I don't have this moment anymore, as much anymore. There is a moment in a restaurant at the end of the night that I have many, many, for many, many years when I was a general manager, when we were beginning, when everybody's gone. And it's, I, I often find I just sit in a restaurant. I enjoy the stillness, especially if you think about three hours earlier, the bustle and the pace and the run and the sprint. And then there's the silence, and and I I love those moments where I get to reflect it because most of the time I those moments for me are, man I love what I do, and and we got to take care of people tonight, we got to take care of our employees, and um, yeah it's at the end of the night when everybody when it's closing time and there's no one there, and it's just me and solace. It's a beautiful time in a restaurant. Greg, Greg Ryan, not if I'm lying, I'm dying. I'll share his, I'll share his episode with you when it's produced. He said the exact same thing, exact same thing. I'm, I'm picking up a thing. Hey, Steve, I know you're on the go, man. I've, I've so enjoyed this. I can only say again, I I really respect and admire what you're up to. I've been a big fan and uh, it's just been awesome that, you know, I got to dig into your story, learn a little bit about the perspective of, why the success has been what it has been. It's not that you're creating new crazy concepts, right? It's not that the steakhouse is new. Uh, and, and I've, I've enjoyed, and I really believe the listeners will get just a tremendous amount of knowledge for those people that are in the hospitality space, inspiration to be more hospitable and those thinking about getting into it, learning that being value forward will actually help you extract the, the kind of economical value uh, that That's a successful right. restaurant will have. And I, I just, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity and uh, for, for answering a random phone call and giving me three minutes and it turned into an hour interview and it's been, uh, it's been great for me. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. 
Hey, Steve, take care, man. Have a nice one. We'll be in touch. You bet. Bye-bye. Never superficial. You gon' know it when it hits you. Get a little sentimental when I'm off.